Good. So let's begin. We're towards the very end of chapter 29. Um, Yaakov has worked for seven years, or perhaps a little less than seven years, for Lavan. He says to uh, Lavan, my, my, so my time is up. It could mean that the seven years have been completed, or it could mean that he's approaching the end of the seven years. In any event, uh, he demands that his wife to be be sent to him. And Lavan gathers all the people of the town. This is found in the 22nd Pasuk. And at night, he brings uh, Leah to uh, Yaakov. And he additionally gives her uh, a shifcha, a, a servant named Zilpa. And Yaakov gets up in the morning and behold, which is verse number 25, says to Lavan, what is this? What did you do? I work for Rachel, you, you, you deceive me. And Lavan says to Yaakov, in our place, we don't do this. And we talked about that. Maybe where you come from is different, but over here, the older one gets married first. However, complete and Shavuazot, Dramban thinks, and it's a simple, I think the plain meaning is finish the seven years. Rashi has this business of seven days, but finish the seven years. And I will give you Gamedzot, this one as well, referring to, to Rachel, in return for the additional labor of seven more years. Yaakov said, I worked seven years for Rachel. Okay, he worked seven years, but it turns out that it wasn't for Rachel because in this town, they don't uh, permit the younger one to be married before the older one. By the way, Yaakov was probably aware of that because he said to Ravan, I'll work seven years, Rachel bitcha haktana for Rachel, your younger daughter. He stipulated the younger daughter. Presumably he knows or suspects that there might be a problem here. So he stipulates, I specifically am working for the younger daughter, but doesn't seem to matter. Because Lovin said, okay, no one else will marry her, which is true. No one else will marry her. But it doesn't mean that these seven years will be counted towards the labor for, uh, in order to secure Rachel. But Yaakov does that. Yaakov works another seven years. That's at verse number 28. So he does what he said he would do. He works an additional seven years. That's now 14 years. And, um, and he's given Rachel as a wife. He was given Rachel as a wife earlier, actually. But the Torah is emphasizing that the seven years were, were in order to secure Rachel as a wife. It sounds like, though, Rachel was actually given to him as a wife at the end of the first seven years. But he's working the additional seven. And Rachel also gets a uh, shivcha in the next verse, in verse number 29. And now the Torah adds in verse number 30. So he, 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 he marries Rachel as well, and he loves Rachel more than Leah. That is to say, despite the fact that Leah is his first wife and Leah is, and Rachel is the second wife, 
Um, and then the Torah emphasized by what I mentioned before, he works an additional seven years, but it sounds like he has two wives by the end of the first, uh, the first set of seven years. So Leah is the first wife, Rachel is the second wife. He loves Rachel more than he loves Leah. That's what we're up to in the story. Um, how much, again, the question of how much do Rachel and Leah know uh, about this whole relation, this whole agreement with Laban? I think in the Torah, it's not clear. Uh, I mean, seven years. He's, he's in the house for seven years, working for seven years. One might make the argument, presumably they know something. And when he first meets Rachel, he kisses her. <coughs> That's significant, presumably. On the other hand, it's quite conceivable that all that aside, the way marriages are arranged is whatever Laban decides is what it is. The, the daughters have no say in this on any level, unless they're asked to say something, as in the case of Rivka, the family says to Rivka, do you want to go? But the entire negotiation is not with Rivka, it's with her, it's with her brother and with her father. It's not with Rivka. So therefore, as far as the daughters are concerned, Whatever their father decides, he decides. It could be that Laban spoke to Leah three days earlier. By the way, in three days, you're getting married. And as far as Leah knows, that's it. So, and we don't know how much they know. Midrash have all kinds of claims they know when they're arranging it. But in the text, it's very hard to know. And what we do know, actually, from a verse later on, is that chapter 30, verse number 14, that's the story of the mandrakes, the Dudaim, hope we get to that. Um, so Reuven finds mandrakes, bring them to his mother, and, and, Le- and Rachel asks Leah for the mandrakes. That's in chapter 30, verse number, um, verse number 15. So Rachel asks for the mandrakes in verse 14. Give me some of those mandrakes, some of those dudaim. I translate as mandrakes. And Leah says to Rachel, Isn't it enough you took my husband? You want to also take the mandrakes of my son? In other words, you, you took my husband. Wait, you took my husband. From Leah's perspective, you took my husband. I'm married to him. Whatever may have transpired in the past, either she knows nothing about it, or she does know and it's irrelevant. The relevant fact is, I'm married to Yaakov because our father made that arrangement. There is no other way to get married to Yaakov. Whoever father decides. And then suddenly, there you are. A short while later, you're also married to him. And he loves you, you more than he loves me. That she does know, as we'll see. And now you want to take the mandrakes of my son, whatever that means, we'll get to. But it's certainly possible that from Leah's perspective, she knows nothing about anything. And even if she does know, it's actually irrelevant because at the end of the day, marriage is decided by the, by, by the father, perhaps father and brother, but it's not decided by the, by the, uh, by the, by the daughter. So let me just say, digress here for a moment. This is, this is Yaakov finds himself marrying out to two women. And from our study of the Chumash, we know, in the case of Abraham and Hagar and Sarah, that 
the man being married to two women is a prescription for a lot of trouble. And we'll see that, how that plays out, of course. But it turns out, just to digress for a moment, it turns out that, let me briefly mention another story, which obviously plays off the story of Yaakov, Yaakov's marriage to, uh, to, Rach, to Leah and then, and then to Rachel. There was another story which has this, this story in mind as the storyteller tells us another story. And that story is found in the book of Shmuel. Say for Shmuel, that's first, the first book of Shmuel. Let's find that. I believe it's chapter, chapter 18. So that's first Samuel chapter 18. Story over there is that um, chapter 17 is David and Goliath. Uh, chapter 18 is after the story of David and Goliath, and uh, the, the women come out to sing before Saul. They come to praise Saul, actually, but they say Saul has slain his thousands and David his ten thousands. It's in chapter 18, verse number, verse number eight. And Shaul, when he hears this, is very angry. He takes it very badly, very poorly. And he says, what, me, they give a 1,000, and the other, David, they give 10,000? And from that day on, Saul was jealous, jealous of David. Oh, yeah, jealous of David. Saw David as a danger, maybe as a sinner, as a rebel. And in Saul's head already, he has to get rid of David, which is complicated because David is a national hero. Um, he is also the one who's brought in to play music for Saul and to calm Saul, who, uh, who has fits of depression or anger or whatever. So it's a very complicated relationship. In any event, in addition to all this, if you remember the story of David and Goliath, when David comes to the battlefield, he starts talking, he says, what a terrible thing, it's not right, etc. He's sort of self-promoting. And David asks the question, I just mentioned it. He says, what's going to be to the one who kills Goliath? What's going to be the reward for the one who kills Goliath? And oh, he says, the family will become very important and the king will give him his daughter. That's what the people say in chapters. The king will give this hero his daughter in marriage. So we bear that in mind. And now we will digress briefly to the book of Shmuel and we read another story it's a perfect example of how one biblical story plays off another. Not that they're identical, but they're to be read together. And the story of David's marriage to Saul's daughter, which is a very complicated story and is important for the book of Shmuel in general, we can pick that up uh, in beginning in chapter, that same chapter, chapter 18 of 1 Samuel, Shmuel Aleph, Pasuk Yud Zion. Pasuk Yud Zion. Wonderful story. I mean, it's not wonderful, but interesting. So remember that the people had said that the king will give his daughter to the hero who kills Goliath. The king will give him his daughter, daughter in marriage. So Shaul approaches David. And he says, listen, my, my older daughter, 
So right away, there's going to be an older daughter and a younger daughter. That right away reminds us of, of Laban's two daughters and also of Yaakov and Esau, of course. How the Book of Shmuel plays with this, Bigadol, I'm not getting into now because that's a big topic, but let's look at this little story for a few moments. My older daughter, Meirav, I'll give it to you as a wife. However, with one stipulation, on condition, there's a condition, in order to marry the older daughter, I want you to be a, a valiant warrior and fight the wars of God. So you'll be a soldier in, soldier in battle and you'll be fighting the war, you'll be a soldier, a professional soldier, fighting God's battles, which is appropriate, just slew Goliath. Obviously you have a lot of ability when it comes to fighting wars, when it comes to military matters. So that's the condition, be a Ben Chayot and fight the wars of God. And now the Book of Shmuel adds, Vishol Amar, Saul said, means he said to himself, Saul was thinking, Saul said to himself, why should I kill him? This way he'll be, he'll be on dangerous missions, a Ben Chayot, a valiant warrior. And one day the Philistines, our enemy, will, will kill him. And I'll be able to get rid of this uh, David, this thorn on my side. Uh, I won't have to do anything myself. I'll have the enemy kill him for me. So that's what he's thinking. So it's interesting, of course, that the book of Shmuel, the text tells us what Saul is thinking. It almost never does that when it comes to David, but it does that often when it comes to Saul. Saul, we might say, is a transparent figure. We know exactly what Saul's thinking. The text tells us. He's thinking, I'll kill him without having to do it myself. That's what he's thinking. Okay. So we have a stipulation. The stipulation in our case is seven years of labor, which turns out to be 14. And the stipulation there is be a valiant warrior, a Ben Chayo. So now David responds. Says, who am I and what is my family? I'm not that important. I'm, I'm, I'm unworthy of this great honor, says David, that I should be the son-in-law of the king. Unworthy. And it came to pass that at the time that Meirav was to be given to David, apparently the time was set, right? The time was set, as in our story. Our time is seven years. Right? Seven years. But at the time, David managed somehow to not accept the offer. He's refusing. I'm not worthy. I'm not, my family's not worthy. Meanwhile, She's given to somebody else. She was given to someone else as a wife, to Adriel Hamacholati. Of course, what we study in the book of Shmuel, always a worthwhile thing to do. The name Adriel Hamacholati is an interesting name. Adriel Hamacholati. Adriel means the, the, the flock of God. Adam is a flock. The flock his name is Flock of God the son of Mecholot, either musical instruments or song. So she's given to some, not to David, she's given to somebody, I'd say, whose name is the uh, singing shepherd. But that is, of course, the singing shepherd. There's only one singing shepherd in the Bible outside of this character. And his name happens to be David. That, of course, is very interesting. 
that the person she's given to is not David. On the other hand, seems to be deeply connected to David. Leave that aside for a moment. So we have, this was the older daughter. Interesting, the text does not tell us what David is thinking. The text tells us what David said. And the reader wonders, is he sincere or not? He's unworthy. Doesn't sign the David that we're familiar with throughout the book of Shmuel, that he talks about his own unworthiness. And in point of fact, he was told from the very beginning that whoever kills Goliath will marry, will be in line to marry the king's daughter. Right. So that, that problem has been solved. I would add that in the case of this case over here, Saul's plan to marry David off to his older daughter, Merab, and then shortly thereafter, hopefully, have him killed by the enemy, does not speak very well for our King Saul as a, a father, does it? He intends to make his daughter a widow not too far down the road. Okay, it does not speak well for King Saul, clearly. Okay, fine. Now, meanwhile, we have, so David has dodged the, another bullet, as he does often, he dodged the bullet, and now the story continues. But it turns out that Michal, daughter number two, she must be the younger daughter, because Meirab is Mitohagadola. And so the other daughter, Michal, loves David. Very unusual, the woman who loves the man. Usually it's the man loving the woman in the Bible. In this case, the woman loves the man. And they told Saul, and the matter pleased him. It suited him. Saul said again to somebody, I will, or maybe to himself, I'll give her to him. And she will be for him a snare. She'll entrap him. Uh, and the Philistines will kill him. So this is just working out just fine. It suited him very, he was very pleased with this idea. I'll give daughter number two to him. And she loves him. She loves him. And it suits him. This way the Philistines will kill him. Verse number 21. Very interesting phrase. Literally means with two of them. You will, I, you will marry, you'll be my son-in-law with both of them. He presumably means with the second one, but the Hebrew is very interesting. Bishtayim, with two of them, I'll come back to that. So now we have the second daughter, another a proposition for David to marry daughter number two, okay? And Saul commands his people to speak to David. David said he was unworthy the first time. He was unworthy. So why is Saul thinking that David would be more worthy now? He's, he's, he's equally unworthy, right? Maybe he hopes because she loves him that maybe it'll be mutual or whatever. Whatever he's thinking, we'll see. Tell David, speak to David secretly and say to him, The king really desires you and all his servants love you. And please become the son-in-law of the king. And David said, is it a small thing to marry the king's daughter? I, 
I'm a poor and a person of little significance. I'm a poor person of no significance. So David is saying no again, but this no is different. He injects the, the thinking that I'm unworthy, right? Um, not my family is not worthy, not my lineage. He puts it in terms of my standing in terms of money. I'm, 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 a, I'm a poor person. I'm an ish rush. That is to say, I couldn't even do it if I wanted to. I don't have to, can't, I can't bring anything into the marriage. I can't give a big dowry. To which So they report back to Saul. The king doesn't demand a dowry. Literally, a hundred foreskins of the Philistines. I want you to kill a hundred Philistines. We now came to avenge the kings, to take vengeance for the king. And once again, Saul was thinking, the text tells us what he's thinking. Saul was thinking, once again, Saul said, Look, this way, killing 100 Philistines, they're great warriors. One of them will kill David. I'll solve my problem. And the matter suited David to become the son of the king. And the days were not mal'u. Of course, we've seen that phrase, obviously, when it comes to Lavan and Yaakov. Malay Shavu Azot, right? Vayamalei Shavu Azot, three times. Uh, we have Kimo'u Yomai. So three times in the Yaakov story is the phrase Mo'u Yomai. Here we have the same thing. The time was not yet up. And it was, it, it, and it suited David to do this. Vayishar B'Enav. We had that expression earlier with Saul. When he hears that Michal loves David, So David agrees with this. This, this suits David well. David goes out. What does David do? David takes his men with him. And he kills 200 Philistines. The Septuagint has Down a hundred. little bit, Chi, I can't hear. Excuse me? He kills 200 Philistines, correct? 200. 200 Philistines. He brings the foreskins to the king. Vayimau'um Ramelech, very strange. Vayimau'um Ramelech, playing with the word of the Malay once again. And of course, Vayitain lo Shaul at Michal Vitorisha. So David marries Michal. Now, the question, of course, when you're reading the story is, let's start with the obvious. Obviously, the story in Shmuel directly speaks to the story of Yaakov and Lavan. You have the older daughter and the, and the, and the, and the, and the younger daughter, the Gedola and the, and, the, and the Katana, in both cases. You have the prospective father-in-law acting in some very devious fashion. Uh, you have a price set you have the father will have his own particular interest, self-interest, which is not the interest of his daughters. That's for sure. Not at all the interest of his daughters. He puts the daughters in a terrible situation because Yaakov is married to two women 
It's going to love one and not the other. That's a prescription for big trouble. We have the phrase in both cases. Now the question is, how does the book of Shmuel use that story? That it uses it is self-evident. Anybody can see that. The question, what's interesting is how it uses it and what the point is. And of course, the book of Shmuel is not about Yaakov and Laban. It's about basically about David, it's about kingship. And here is interesting actually, that it presents David, in the case of Yaakov and Lavan, at that point in our story, Lavan takes advantage of Yaakov. Lavan is the arch deceiver. And he, he, he takes advantage of Yaakov for his own purposes. He's willing to sacrifice his daughter's happiness. He's willing, obviously, to sacrifice Yaakov's happiness. That goes without saying. And it's all about his own particular desires to extract 14 years of labor instead of seven, uh, clearly. And we see this throughout the story, the way he behaves. And Yaakov is, is duped. Yaakov is tricked by Laban. Even though Yaakov specified Rachel, Bitra, Hatana, maybe he thought he had covered his bases, but he doesn't. And Laban is able to deceive him with the excuse that we don't do this in our place, et cetera, et cetera. In the case of Shmuel, Book of Shmuel, in the case of David, it's different. Because in the case of David, David, who plays the role of, of Yaakov over here, He's different. He's able to see through, he's able to see through um, what Shoal is thinking. And some other interesting features I'll get to in a minute. But let me just start this way. In the case of David, he rejects the first offer, but he seems to accept the second offer, right? He, 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 he stalls the first time, he delays the first time, and the time is up. And then she's given to somebody else, Adriel Hamachovati. But the second offer, he actually accepts. Why does he reject the first offer and accept the second offer? And the answer, I think, is clear why. The first offer, from David's perspective, is a very bad offer. The offer is if you fight the wars of God. And we all know that the wars of God are, are actually never ending. Milchamot Hashem. There's always some holy war taking place someplace or other. And of course, so David rejects that because it's a it's a it's a it's a it's a it's a losing proposition for him. One day, sometime, the enemy will kill him. If he's constantly going out on dangerous missions, he's an Ishchayo, at some point in time there's a strong chance that he will be killed. It's open-ended. Open-ended, exactly. The second uh, proposition is very specific. Kill 100 Philistines. That David can manage. That he's a great warrior. He has his men with him. And he manages to do that. And then he's finished with it. That's point number one. So David is clever in that, in that way. Um, you never know in the book of Shmuel when David says something, what his thinking is. Almost never. Shaul is a transparent figure. You always know what he's thinking. But with David, that's one of the hallmarks of David. It's very hard to figure out what goes into David's decision. Is it a pragmatic? Is it ethical? Is it something else? With David, you never really, it's hard to read him. What's interesting in the story, by the way, is that in the case of David, he doesn't kill 100 Philistines. He kills 200. 
At least that's the text we have in the Septuagint had 100, but we have 200. He kills 200 Philistines. And he kills 200 Philistines, presumably, because it picks up on what King Saul had said to David, you'll marry two of them. In other words, David's interest, actually, despite his protestations, who am I, I'm not worthy, and all that stuff. David is not just interested in becoming the son-in-law of the king. He has another interest. He wants to become the son-in-law of the king. Remember, David's been anointed king privately already. David's interest is becoming the son-in-law of the king because that sets him up as a possible successor, a legitimate successor. David marries the king's daughter. He is a son-in-law. He's not a son, but he's a son-in-law. He could easily take over Saul's kingship as successor without overthrowing Saul, simply succeeding Saul. Of course, the complication is tension between Saul and David. In fact, Saul wants to kill David. But David killing 200 Philistines is making the point, I actually am your only son-in-law. And now we understand something else on top of it, which is why the person who marries uh, the first daughter, Merav, is Adriel Hamacholati, which is essentially a, 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 a David name, Singing Shepherd. She's married to Singing Shepherd, but David is the Singing Shepherd. So David's, of course, counter to what David said, and says, I'm not worthy, who am I to do this? Such a great honor, and all that stuff. But the, the reader, of course, knows, that's what he may say to Saul. But what he's thinking is, I'm worthy in space, and not only that, I'm the only worthy one. In fact, I'm the only son-in-law you really have. You may have 100 sons-in-law, maybe 100, doesn't matter. There's one son-in-law, and that's me. That's the story. In order to make this point, you see, what the Book of Shmuel does, among other things, is it reminds us of the story of Yaakov and Laban. In reading the story of David and Shaul, and how David is able to maneuver things to his own advantage. In the case of David, of course, he has the perfect situation. He's married to one woman. I mean, David has many wives, don't get me wrong. That's a whole different question. But in this particular episode, he actually is married to both of them. That's the point, theoretically. That's the 200. What David is saying is he's married to both of them, actually, but he doesn't have the complications of being married to both. The complications of being married to two women at the same time, the Sefer Breshit is that there's going to be rivalry between the two women because each one could, in theory, see herself as, as equal to the other or doesn't find her place. The story of Sarah and Hagar these are complicated stories that we'll get to Rachel and Leah. It's a complicated story. Leah is older, Rachel he meets first, he loves one more than the other. We'll see the complications. Sefer Breshid is full of complications. But in the case of David, it's perfect actually. He's married to both in theory, but he's married to one uh, de facto. He's only married to Michal. Of course, it's gonna be a very unhappy marriage, but that is, so that's not such a problem. The other one's married to somebody else. That, that, that eliminates the tension of, of one man married to two women, two, two, two daughters of the king, because he lays claim on both, but he's only married to one. And now there's something else in the Shmuel story, which is very interesting, which also picks up, I think, on the Lavan story. This is a very, uh, it's not an obvious point, but it's actually a very important point. Um, and that is, 
that notice in the story of David and Saul, David and Saul, you have two expressions. You have, you have the word to love. The love in the David-Saul story is Michal, his daughter, loved David. Very unusual. Michal loves David. But Michal She loves David. When it comes to Saul and David themselves, the book of Shmuel uses a different expression. It uses the same expression for both of them. It uses the expression for Saul in verse number, um, in verse number 20. Michal loved David. The matter was, was good in his eyes. I would say the matter, this, this thing suited him. It was, right, we have that expression. People did whatever they felt they wanted to do. So this, 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 this suited, this pleased or suited Saul. One might say it suited his purposes. That you have in verse number 20. And then he makes the second offer to David. He says, just kill me a hundred Philistines. And it says in verse number 26, they tell David, And the matter was suitable in David's eyes. It's exactly the same expression. So we have, we have a contrast then in that story between two things, between on one hand, love, A loves B, Michal loves David, but as far as Saul and David are concerned, this is a very important point for the book of Shmuel, it's not about love. It's not clear that David actually loves anybody in the book of, book of Shmuel. Uh, it suits his purposes. It suits his purposes to marry Michal because it positions him to be king. It suits his purposes to marry Meirav, but it doesn't suit his purposes because it's too dangerous, it'll get him killed. He has it all worked out. What you have is two people over here, Saul and David. Saul is willing to, have his, to, to make his, his daughters into, into widows very soon to eliminate his enemy, using marriage as the pretext, having somebody else kill his enemy for him. And by the way, Having somebody kill his enemy or supposed enemy for him is not unique in the book of Samuel to King Saul. Someone else does exactly the same thing, but, but actually successfully. And who is the person who does exactly the same thing? And his enemies is- David. Is King David, of course. What's that story called? Uriah and Bathsheba. Exactly what David Bathsheba. does. He's got a problem with Uriah doesn't want to kill him himself, or he's actually a hero, a great warrior and a hero and a noble person, et cetera, et cetera. David's foil, or Yah, the light of God. He's, he's like, uh, truly noble. David doesn't kill him himself. David gets him killed in battle. He instructs his general to get him killed in the battlefield. Can't get into that story, but it actually, actually works. David succeeds. Here, David's able to, 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 to outwit Saul. Saul is obvious, Saul is, Saul is transparent. David's able to outwit him. And we go back to our story of Lavan and, and, ya and Yaakov. We remember that when Yaakov first meets Rachel, and, and later on as well, it's, it makes it clear, but Yahab Yaakov with Rachel. Says it's right over here, in the, in our, back to our story, says that Jacob loved Rachel. And Jacob said, I'll work seven years for Rachel, your younger daughter. 
right? Verse number, in our chapter, chapter 29, verse number 18, he loves Rachel. But in our story, he may love Rachel, but from Lovam's standpoint, he might have said, what a beautiful thing. He loves my daughter. I'm so happy for her. I can't wait for them to get married. You know, that's what some other person might have said. With Lovan, oh, he loves her. So, I mean, I can, I, can, he, I can put him on the hook for another seven years. He loves her so much. I'll extract 14 years of work as opposed to seven years of work. And remember, and I pointed this out last week, that when Lovan first meets Yaakov, he sees that Yaakov is a poor schlepper, not a wealthy guy with 10 camels. Lovan says to Yaakov, He says, ah, he can hear the voice dropping with disappointment. You are, in fact, my flesh and blood. Atzmi is a description in the book of Genesis of husband and wife. When Adam sees the woman created and brought to him. But in the case of Robin, as we discussed, it's all about commodities, transactions, business, taking advantage of people's vulnerabilities, etc. And other people pay the price, including his own daughters. So the, the, the writer of Shmuel, of course, the book of Shmuel, it's much more complicated even than I said. I'm just pointing out in terms of our story, there's an additional complicating story there. Why the book of Shmuel is so unbelievably interesting, but Coming back to our story, when we look at our story through the prism of Sefer Shmuel, it highlights for us, at least you see how the Shmuel is, is reading our story. It picks on the, the Malu Hayamim, it picks up on the contrast between love on one hand and, 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 and transactional thinking on the other, and thinking about myself as opposed to the people around me, picks up on all of those things. Meanwhile, Unlike the David story in which David is in theory married to two, one could say, but in, but in fact married to one. In the case over here, Yaakov ends up married to both. He's married to Rachel and to Leah. He loves Rachel more than Leah. And this is going to be a prescription for trouble. Anybody who's read the book of Breshit understands that being married to two women, such as the case of Sarah and, 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 and Hagar, as at best a very complicating factor. Just wanted to make that little point before we proceed now with verse number 31. Are there any comments or questions to this point? Yeah, lo, lo, yom, lo the day is not being fulfilled is, the, is, 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 is point two in how David has become the one to determine the terms. He determined that because, because the, the price for the first daughter was not a hundred foreskins. The price for the first daughter was becoming a permanent general. Right. So he, he both switches the terms and he switches the time. He speeds up the time. Lo unlike Yaakov, who fulfilled the days. He right, wasn't, of course, that's true. In, other words, in other words, what's being underlined is the proactivity of David. Well, I would say this way, he doesn't and the get trickiness. a second offer. But sometimes he limit, he takes the first offer off the table altogether. And you're right, he may be suggesting to Saul, who knows that this that the price is too high. It's not a price I can afford to pay, which is certainly the case. And by the way, remember that in the case of Uriahiti, Uriah, whom David has killed, uh, he instructs his general to place him uh, in a dangerous place on the battlefield to withdraw the troops 
and Uriah will be killed. Those are what David's instructions that he gives to his general. Uh, Uriah is carrying the letter itself. He gives Uriah the letter which says to do this. He has Uriah carrying the letter, he says, kill me, and this is how you kill me. Not nice. Um, but actually, when you look at the story there, which we're getting into now, it's pretty clear that actually Yoav, the general, does not do that. He doesn't simply leave him stranded on the battlefield. He doesn't do that. He does something different. He says he placed him in a place where he knew ki shama. He puts him in a place where there are valiant warriors. It's not even clear whether the valiant warriors are the Philistine warriors or the Israelite warriors. But in point of fact, he does exactly what Saul had said, be a, be a, be a ben chayel. One might say in, in, in not defense of Yoab, but in terms of what Yoav, in my book on Shmuel, it came out recently, I make this claim that Yoav is a, basically a uh, complicated character in the book of Shmuel, but he, he is above all, a, uh, he's, he's a general. And in the book of Shmuel, he doesn't want people to die for no purpose. He's willing to kill you if he has a purpose. He's a great warrior, but to kill someone for no purpose. And I think, I, I want, I speculate, pure speculation that for Yoav to take this noble Uriah who says, how can I go back to my wife? My fellow comrades are sleeping in the field and my master Yoav's in the field. He's, he's, a, he's a committed soldier. Have him simply die being stranded and alone on a battlefield with no one around him does not suit Yoav. He's not going to do that. So he puts him in a dangerous operation where there are other people. In, in war, there are, there, are dangerous, there are dangerous things that happen in war and less dangerous. On D-Day, the first group that went over in D-Day, many of them were killed, if not most. Comes with the battle. If you want to secure the land, that's what they did. And there are other operations that are less dangerous. He puts Yoav together with the most dangerous operation. But he doesn't just put him in any place. He has people guarding the city in a certain place. That's where he puts Yoav. And the Philistines attack and many die. And Yoav's among the, amongst, the, amongst the casualties. So he doesn't do that. But my point is that he puts them where there are B'nai Chayel. So that's when, you, when, that, when David successfully eliminates his so-called enemy, it's an enemy that David created out of his, out of his own behavior. Oh, is not David's enemy. But anyway, the point is, so then you have the Ben Chayel, for sure. So David rejects that, as I said. He doesn't yet have a second offer. It's possible that he's, he's sending a message to Saul, whether Saul picks up on it, that you know the stakes are too high. That's not something I can do. He put it in terms of, I'm not worthy, but if maybe so also means, well, maybe we can still entice him to do it. And now the second daughter loves him. So you have that as well. Um, yeah, anybody else for comment? Yeah, uh, right, so, so one at a time, uh, go ahead. Yeah, um, may I? Uh, uh, somewhere in Madras, it's stated that uh, uh, one of Laban's daughters was to be married to Esau. And if that is true, um, Esau must, uh, uh, Esau's tribe might not only be on account of uh, having his birthright taken or uh, blessings taken, but also on account of his uh, uh, wife to be taken by Jacob. Uh, no, to me, I must confess that I find zero evidence in the text, I say zero, that that's true. That in any manner, shape or form, that Esau is destined to marry the daughter, the older daughter of Laban, in point of fact, there's no evidence on any level that he's thinking of marrying anybody 
except the ones that he marries, who are the, the people who live right next door, the, the, the Canaanite women who Esau marries. And Midrash reads it in, as it does uh, for any number of reasons, to point out the, the contrast, I mean, to, to point out actually the contrast and the parallel between the two stories, the older and the younger in each case, etc. But I must say, I'm, I, don't, I never have found any evidence in the Chumash that Esau was destined to marry the older daughter. I see no evidence whatsoever of that. So I, since we're sticking to what the Chumash seems to be saying in Pshat, I am not going to go there. If you were studying Medrash, you might try to figure out what is behind the Medrash. Obviously, it's not in the text. So therefore, obviously, the Medrash has something else in mind. Um, anyway, uh, yes, the fact that he marries afterwards the daughter of, of, of Yishmael after he sees that uh, that uh, Yitzchak and, is, uh, and Rivka are unhappy with the Canaanite women. He doesn't get rid of the first wife. He keeps them. But, that, but the fact that he marries Yishmael's daughter, which from the standpoint of a covenant is also wrong-headed, does not suggest that he was destined to marry Lovin's daughter. It suggests to me the opposite. He's marrying someone, again, not from the mother's side of the family, from the father's side of the family, and someone from a covenantal standpoint who also has been excluded. So there's an ace of Yishmael link. That's there. But there's, I see no evidence. It has to be a, shown how in the Chumash you see this. I don't see it at all. Anybody else? Uh, yes, um, Suri, I see you. Do you yes, have a question? Speak. So this, this point is, it, it may be obvious, but I think just worth saying anyway, that this we see here the beginning of the payback in a sense that Yaakov gets when Lavan says, Lo like you may have thought back there that it was okay to take the birthright and take the blessing, even though you're the younger. We have mentioned that already. Can I say something about the payback, actually? I don't know why we are- We said one thing before this, before I wanted to point out that it's not clear, I mentioned this last week, two weeks ago, it's not clear, actually, that Robin necessarily knows about that. In other words, it's not clear whether the connection is being made by Robin himself or by the biblical narrator, by the Chumash. But in either event, of course, you're right that it points to what's happening to Yaakov here is somehow payback or, you know, don't mind even say punishment for the behavior earlier, as we had discussed. Uh, can so I, when, can I one jump of many in? examples, actually. One of many, many examples of what's happening to Yaakov here is what he did or similar to what he did in the early, and we'll see more today. Sure, yeah, it's the beginning. Can, sure. I, can I just make a comment yeah, about this payback? Yep. I'm, I'm just wondering, I know we're very focused that Jacob did a bad thing and that he's always getting his comeuppance, but if that were true, why does God say, I'm going to protect you and you're my chosen one at Bethel? So clearly God knows what happened and God doesn't seem to have a problem with it. No, God has many problems with it. God does know what's going to happen because the point of Yaakov in the house of Lovin for 20 years is about Yaakov coming to understand what he did wrong and, be, and, and becoming ultimately a different person. Ultimately, he doesn't come back as Yaakov. Ultimately, he comes back, yes, as Yaakov, but also as, as, as Israel. Absolutely. There's no contradiction whatsoever. Of course, God knows it's wrong. And by the way, I would add something else. Yesterday's Haftorah and, and, and many Haftorot, where the Sephardim start the Haftorah, even the Ashkenazim, but where the Sephardim start the Haftorah, it's, it's, a, it's a condemnation of Yaakov from top to bottom. 
And having said all that, what's the end of the Torah? Shuvo Yisrael al Hashem Elokecha. It's Jacob's story. So God says to Jacob at the end of the time, Shuvo Eres Mulatecha. It's all about return. So the point of fact, of course, I think we all know this, that for the most part, to the degree that we learn anything in life at all, we don't learn it from our, from our triumphs. We learn it usually from our mistakes and paying a big price. And then we try not to make the same mistake again. Often we do. It's the same mistake with a different form, but it's the same mistake. But in point of fact, we learn through error and there's nothing wrong with that. The Talmud says that a hundred times over. When it comes to learning Torah, it's certainly true. Right? A person can't learn Torah except if, if, if one stumbles first. So of course, yeah, of course, Yaakov, whether Yaakov is worthy of the blessing, in other words, the blessing is certainly can't be Esau. That's for certain. It's got to be Jacob. But the question the Chumash raises implicitly, I would say almost explicitly is, can such a person get, 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 get this covenantal blessing? And the answer is, he will be worthy of it at some point in time, once he both has paid, his, paid, the, paid the price for his behavior, and more, more importantly, has learned from has learned from 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 the uh, from the experience, which he does after twenty years in Lavan Garti. He says it straight out: "It's not my place." And then he uh, still uh, and be transformed, etc., uh, etc. Et so there's no. Could I, could I add something here? Um, of course. Uh, just the reference to Yashar. I mean, uh, rather than you know, it seems like um, you know, like Yisrael. Uh, rather than uh, uh, Yaakov, so if if there is some cross reference to to what happened with Yaakov, uh, that 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 would seem to also be a uh, a textual type reference to the. Uh, it's possible. Look, it's certainly the case that that Yisrael in the Chumash, Yaakov getting a new name Yisrael, the name Yisrael is playing off the word Yashar. Yud Shin Yashar El. And the proof that that's true is a very simple proof. Because in the book of Devarim, Yisrael has, 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 has another name. It's called Yeshurun. Yeshurun is, 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 is Yisrael. And as the Ramban points out, Yeshurun and Yisrael are not two, two very different names. They're the same name. Because remember, the Chumash doesn't have any vowels or anything. You have the Sin and the Shin. Yud Sin Resh, Yud Shin Resh, Yashar El. God is Yashar. And in point of fact, um, so it's not actually a new name, of course. And the, Ram, and the Ramban quotes the verse, for your hair the crooked shall become straight. A cold is crooked in the sense it's not direct. It's crooked in the sense it, 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 is, it is circuitous, it's to go around. For your hair cold, the one who goes around will become straight. And the point of fact, as the Ramban intimates, I'll say it explicitly, all of Jacob's blessings till that point are gotten in a circuitous way. He takes the blessing that was supposed to go to Asa, he takes for himself. He makes his money, as we'll see sometime in the coming weeks, he makes his money by manipulating Lavan's flock. As Lavan's sons say, he made his money off our, off our father. He manipulates the animals, the speckled and the spotted and the streaked and this. So every, all, all his blessings have been gotten in a kind of a cold way, in a circuitous way. When he confronts this this, this human or messenger of God, angel, let me go, says this Ish, and the, Jacob says, not until you bless me. Here he gets the blessing straight. 
There is not getting it through somebody else. There is demanding it directly. Oh, directly, your name is Israel. And that, that's my blessing. But didn't so God help him with transformation. It's all about God helped him with this. The other way, it's not possible, actually. But he was aided and abetted by Rebecca along the way and by God himself, who showed him how to do the speckled, uh, you know, in terms of how he might get the, uh, the livestock. And he saw that in a dream, right? Well, first of all, he claims to see it in a dream. Whether he did or didn't, I don't know. We'll get to the dream. Okay. Second of all, being abetted by Rebecca is actually irrelevant. Irre irrelevant. Um, what does that say? So what? Adam, Adam, Adam ate of the fruit, ate it and invented by his wife. Doesn't seem to help him any. God says, Shabbat Ishtacha. Our tradition doesn't believe that if someone tells you to do a bad thing, that, that, that exempts you. Ein shleich says. Well, I don't think it exempts him, but it certainly lends complexity to the story. It adds complexity, yes. That is certainly the case. The story is extremely complex extremely complex. And the fact of the matter is, right, it's never black and white. I, mean, I never suggest it's black and white. It's nuanced in a hundred ways. But I'm saying to say that he's a tzaddik from day one does, first of all, it does violence to the text and also does violence to Jacob because his greatness actually, and his main quality is, his ability to learn from, from his past and to, and, 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 to, and to understand his own past in a very different way. That's Jacob's great, great power. And if you want to claim that from day one, I mean, how anybody could actually claim this reading, the simple chumash is highly, I, I can't imagine, but I would argue that now we can't, you read it, opening up the chumash, but when you read the, the various prophetic writings, which allude to the story, they read it, they condemn Yaakov from top to bottom, but you have to learn to be different. And there are many different citations from the prophetic writings the inter-biblical texts, which are clearly reading it in the most obvious way, and the Chumash itself. It is, a, it is payback over here throughout the story. As we'll see, many examples of it. So you mentioned one, but there are probably a dozen of them. And we'll, we'll see all this. But that it's highly nuanced and complicated, yes. Yes, that Jacob's uncomfortable doing it, yes. For, any, for, for different reasons, some of which are less you know, virtuous. Maybe, maybe I'll get caught. But he's not comfortable doing it. He doesn't feel right about it. He doesn't say the right things, etc. That is true. But bottom line is, he, he actually does it. So he, he did it. Whatever his his thinking was. Okay. Let us let's move forward here with um. Let's 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 continue now. So we have uh, David. I had yes. uh, I I was thinking that sometimes um, even when something confronts you, if you're not ready to deal with it, you don't see it. And you, he, when he was tricked here, he didn't recognize, he couldn't look in the mirror and say, oh, you know, this is just like what I, what I did. He wasn't up to that stage yet. He needed a few more encounters with the same situation. And that is what it takes to grow till he finally could say, oh, yes, this is who I am. This is what I brought on myself. He wasn't at that stage yet of self-awareness when I, this happened. It well, didn't ring a bell for him. It takes Israel 40 years in the desert, right? Right. right. Two generations. Exactly. It takes Jacob 20 years. And even after the 20, I think he, he does learn. And that's his greatness, actually. 
He does learn, but he, he still remains Jacob afterwards. He doesn't actually, we'll talk about that. Unlike Avraham, uh, you know, he has a change of name, but he's always called Yaakov, which is interesting in its own right. We'll, we'll, we'll see these things. We want to jump the gun. Okay, let's let's continue now. Um, verse number 30, let's see, Pasuk Lamed Aleph. So God saw that Leah was literally snua, hated. All right, someone who claims she's not actually hated, but relative to Rachel, she's hated. Or it could be that Yaakov resents the fact that Lovan tricked him. And whether Leah knows about it or not, at the end of the day, she is the one that was foisted upon Yaakov. He didn't want to marry her. And uh, so he may resent it. And uh, she's called Snua. In the, so God saw that she was Snua. God opened her womb. But Rachel was, was barren. And here there's actually a very interesting point about this pasuk, which I would say is counterintuitive. And that is, if we have four matriarchs in the book of Genesis, four of them, Sarah, Rebecca, Leah, and Rachel. We have four. Three of the four women have trouble having children. Right? Three of them. That's Sarah, Rivka, and, and Rachel all have trouble. Two of, two of the stories are very, very similar, which is Rachel and Sarah. Each one brings another woman into the marriage, etc. So one might say that the default of the matriarchs is not to have children right away and to struggle with that. And the only one who has children right away is Leah, and yet the Torah actually gives a reason. The Torah gives a reason. The Torah says because God saw that she was Snuah, God intervened. So the the inter, the, the, the Exception to the rule is, is, a, is a function of God's intervention. And by Yiftachet now we have the birth of, of Leah's children due to God's intervention. Remember, the reason for the intervention was God saw that she was, she was disliked, literally hated. Well, let's say, if we want to make have a more gentle translation, she was less, she was less favored. Here the English is unloved. Okay, fine. So, so Leah uh, becomes pregnant, gives birth, and she names her son Reuven. When you see the word Reuven, you see Reuven, look, a son. But it gives a, a, a different reason for the name. For she said, She says, God has seen beyond ye. God has seen my suffering. Uh, and my affliction, and uh, my husband, uh, and now my husband will, uh, will, will, will love me. So it's perhaps a hope, a prayer, that now that I'm the mother of his child, Ruvain, uh, maybe my husband will love me. So the name was dealt with the fact that the name Ruvain, first of all, was given by the mother. Jacob doesn't name the child. Jacob names none of, none of his children, actually. Jacob doesn't name the child. And she names it as a function of her relationship to Yaakov, which she describes with the word Inui. And that word Inui is a very important word in Sefer Breshit. It's one of the covenantal terms, Eirut, Avlik, and Inui. And we had it also with Sarah and Hagar, Bataneha, Sarai, etc. So here we have her describing as Inui. Notice that the word Inui in the Bible, with one exception, takes the verb always to see. 
and it takes not only the verb to see, it never, I don't believe it ever says it says which is interesting. The exception to the rule is, is uh, Hagar, where the angel says to Hagar, don't worry, uh, in chapter 16, Shema Hashem El Onyech. It's interesting, God is hearing, but not Bir, but El Onyech. Maybe we'll revisit the difference between Bir and El later. But in any event, that's son number one. So son one is about God's saw. God saw my Onyi, my affliction. That's son number one. Maybe my husband will love me. Now I'm Snua. Maybe I'll be Alva someday. Vatar Odvate with Ben. Now she again, child number two. She gives birth to a second uh, child. Vatomer, Kishama Hashem Kisnua Nohi. God heard that I am Snua. And God gave me this one also. Shimon. So the second son is Shimon from the word Lushimoa to hear. So God heard that I am, I was Snua. So what is the difference between the first son and the second son? Both of them are, have to do with her relationship to Yaakov. That's for sure. But what's interesting is the difference between seeing and hearing. Perhaps I'll suggest, perhaps, that the first uh, name, she says, God saw me. In other words, her state was such that she wasn't praying either. She wasn't crying out to God at that point. Because in order to pray, actually, I think in order to pray, you have to have some kind of hope. If you're truly despairing, you've given up, um, you, can't, you, can't, you can't open your mouth. There's not, almost nothing you can say. In the case of Hannah, we have a kind of intermediate step. She does pray. She can't say the words if she can't open her mouth. Her lips are moving, but there's no sound. Okay, it's a, it's a, it, but, but there is a prayer. She still has some hope. Even though the husband says to her, don't bother with your dreams, she has some hope. But you can be in a state in life where you can't even pray. And that's the first step. But God nonetheless saw me. But when it came to the second one, God heard that I hated. Sounds like she was actually saying something. God heard me speak. It's not right. And every, he doesn't like me. He's still... So God responded. So the first two speak to her. She names them in relationship to, to Yaakov. Then we come, she still has more children because God is, in, intervention of God was a function to repair the relationship to, uh, to, uh, to, to Leah. And she still says, so God is still involved. Now she has another child. Says now this time my husband will be joined to me. I have born for him three children. Therefore, she named him Levi to to accompany. So the third son already is more positive. Maybe now he'll he'll join with me. More than maybe he'll stop hating me, but maybe he'll actually join me. But once again, I'm hoping maybe he'll join me. The relationship is not yet complete. And that, once again, is evidenced by the name that she gives. So God still is intervening, because God intervened to help Leah. And she has another child. And she said, this time, I will praise God. So notice, the fourth child, 
doesn't mention the husband. Baruch Hashem, she says. Hashem. The moment she says that, without reading further in the text, what is it going to say? Of course, she doesn't have more children. Because the matriarchs never have children right away. The default is not to have. The story of Leah is God's intervention to help Leah out, to make her a, a, a full wife. Apparently, time son number four rolls around, she is now a full wife because he may love Rachel more than Leah, but Leah is the mother of four of his children. And Rachel has no children. So you love the mother of your children, just four children. Hapam odet Hashem. Notice that the third one already, three and four are moving, the first two are about, about being disliked. The last two were different. The last two was the, the positive relationship. The third was but the fourth one is no husband is mentioned at all. Baruch Hashem, she says. And then of course, Yehuda. therefore he's called Judah. And of course the last two words, she stops having children. Now let me make a different point. Generally but your point, speaking- your point, But your point is countered by the mandrakes. No, well, we'll get to the mandrakes. It's not counted by it, but we'll, we'll get there. We'll get by to, what we'll she get says. We will, we will get there, my friend. Uh, we, will, we will get there. We'll see. But, but the point is, I would say something else about this. You know, generally speaking, the, this approach, I would call a, uh, a, a, a literary approach. Generally speaking, I don't try to psychologize the characters except where the text calls for it. But generally, unlike many other interpreters, um, they tend to very much psychologize what's going on. I understand the desire to do so. That's not my approach. But I will say something here called psychological. I think the text does call for it. And that is what's interesting is we think about Yaakov's family. Yaakov's family, you can see it right here already, is a family that will be beset. Every family has, in Genesis has conflicts. The first human family, Cain, Cain kills Hebel. Um, there's always rivalry. There's always people vying for the affection of a father figure or for, or for God, whatever. Um, Yaakov's family is replete with, because the way the family is built, it's built through the, well, I say the conflict between the two women. In fact, is he's married, maybe not by any fault of his own, but he ends up being married to two sisters and then two additional handmaidens, etc. And he loves one more than the other, which is the real problem here. So what's interesting is if you think about just thinking, moving forward through the book of Genesis. So you have Ruvain, Shimon, Levi, and Yehuda. When it comes to Ruvain, uh, and we'll deal with this when we get to the stories more in detail, but Ruvain ends up taking the side of his mother. You have this with the mandrakes. He brings the mandrakes to his mother. He involves himself in his mother's battles, which is probably inappropriate. He also sleeps with Bilha, perhaps to disqualify Bilha, who was Rachel's handmaiden. And whatever you think of, you know, it's not obviously the Torah and ja Yaakov don't think well of that, but he is citing his motive is basically is to defend his mother, to side with his mother, etc. That's as far as Ruben is concerned. Then as far as Shimon and Levi are concerned, they enter into a very deep conflict with their father over Dina, the story of Dina, whom the Torah calls in chapter 34, Dina Batleya, right? 
It's Leah's daughter. And Yaakov seems not to be terribly concerned with, with rectifying the situation. He's afraid to do something. And the Shimon and Levi take the law into their own hands. And when Yaakov condemns them, so what did he do? It's our sister. It's our sister. It's Leah's daughter. So Shimon, I would say Ruven, Shimon, and Levi, actually, one can see in the, in the naming of Ruven, Shimon, and Levi, what they carry with them throughout their lives is, and from their standpoint, the justifiable uh, defense of their, of, their, uh, of their mother. They see their mother, unbeloved mother, and they were born to an unbeloved mother, or not a fully beloved mother. The one who actually can bring the family together in the book of Genesis is, of course, Yehuda. Yehuda is not born to an unbeloved mother. He's born to a beloved mother. She has no statement about Yaakov when he's born. Baruch Hashem. Baruch Hashem, she says. It's not about maybe Jacob will love me. Jacob does love me. She's, she's, she, she is beloved. Okay. Maybe, maybe uh, Rachel is, is, is more beloved. That's possible. But, um, but she's, she's a beloved. She has a place. She's the mother of his children. And she has she has a place in the family, and that's the um, that's the uh, that's the one who will be able ultimately to unify the family. So I'm saying in reading these names over here, it says a lot about the way the family is constructed. It says about God's intervention, God's attempt to be a kind of mediator for the family, etc., and all that. But I do think it can be seen as playing out in the rest of Sefer Breshit, and it singles out Yehuda as the, the one who's capable, at least of bringing the entire family together. And we'll see this later, if we get to it one day, the character of Yehuda is a very central character in Sefer Breshit, and we'll see about how, in terms of the family dynamics, how Yehuda figures very, very centrally. Um, this is Vatam, let me read one more verse over here. Does someone have the time, because I don't. Okay, well, what time is it? It's 11.10, you have about five more minutes, plus five minutes. Okay, questions. Okay, one more pause, I'll take comments, one second. Next verse. We're not going to get, we'll continue next week with this. Rachel saw she had not given birth to Jacob and she was jealous of her sister. Now, the fact of the matter is, what do you mean she saw she hadn't given birth? She knows she hasn't given birth, but the point is, there's suddenly there's jealousy. And the reason there's jealousy now and only now is as I suggested, because now she has an actual rival in the family. Up to this point, there was no rival. Up to this point, there's a, a, there's a beloved one, there's an Ahuva, and there's a Snua. Rachel was the Ahuva, as the Torah says, even though she was married second to Jacob, he loves her. That was before the four children, before God's intervention. God is now even the playing field. And from Rachel's standpoint, the, an even playing field means that I'm no longer the, 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 the favored wife. And now this, this, this lends itself the possibility of of kina, which of course in general, jealousy is a very dangerous, in general, a very dangerous feeling. It can lead to all kinds of, 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 of bad behaviors. So that's, we'll see next week what happens over here in the story of Yaakov and Rachel. As someone mentioned earlier, it's a nuanced story. And the next story is the, is the king of nuance actually. I mean, nobody's going to exit this story totally clean. It doesn't work that way in the Chumash. Uh, at this stage, everybody, it's very complex. There are no villains here. 
maybe Ravan is a villain, but in terms of the people we care about, they're not villains. On the other hand, there's a lot of, a lot of, a lot of complications. Um, okay, let me take a couple of comments and questions and I'll stop. Um, All right. Yes, go ahead. Um, there's a few in the chat. Of, so um, I guess I just want to kind of point out something that Ozzy Orbach mentioned a few minutes ago that like about, um, and Ozzy, feel free to jump in if I'm mischaracterizing you, but like, does Leah always remain the hated one? Yehuda meaning except it was, and Leah's kind of Baruch Hashem naming of Yehuda. It could mean Baruch Hashem, lousy. You know, Baruch Hashem's a non-answer sometimes. No, um, but the point is that the Torah goes out of its way to give reasons for the names. The, first of all, the, the, the naming of children in general is significant from many perspectives. Naming in general is significant because naming is something that a parent typically does. Or in the case of creation story, the animals are named in the second creation narrative by, 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 by the human being. That's very significant that the human gives the names to the animals as opposed to God who names everything in chapter one. The human has a, a, a place in, in naming creation in chapter two. So the name itself is significant. The name itself is interesting, what the name is. And the one giving the name is significant. Here in this case over here, let's start with the fact that she gives all of the names. You expect the, the man to give some of the names. That's the way it typically works. Jacob gives no names. And the first three names are clearly about her relationship to Yaakov. Therefore, that's what entitles us to draw the inference that since in the name number four, which she names, she doesn't mention Yaakov at all, and, and, the, the, and the deficiency in their relationship, we can only extrapolate from that that, in fact, she doesn't feel that deficiency at this point that she feels she's comfortable with a position within the family. That was my point. And that's why there's jealousy in the next verse because Rachel senses that as well. She's totally, she's totally at peace. Okay, he loves the other one. I'm the mother of his children. And that's very important. And therefore, once she says that, then God stops because God's intervention was God saw she was Snua. Well, she's not Snua anymore. The moment she's not Snua, we go back to the default of Genesis the, the, the matriarchs have trouble having children. That was my point. Yes, anybody else? Is that it for the questions? Or is there uh, I could say something, uh, which is just uh, the, um, the this idea of not having, uh, of needing God to have children uh, seems a little bit like needing God to have water in, in Israel. It seems like uh, uh, there seems to be a, a sense that God is necessary. I wouldn't put it that way. I mean, God is necessary. Obviously, if there's no water, if there's no rain, if there's no air, we can't survive. I mean, no, no, no. In Israel, in Israel versus Egypt. I'm saying for the Jewish women, the same thing. They need God in order to be have what is a normal thing. It's a normal thing to have children. Well, I would say I would say the following. I would say that I, I, I would argue that the, the, the matriarchs have, have children eventually. I would say that the fact that the matriarchs, leaving Leah aside, she's the exception. The fact that the matriarchs have to wait to have, wait to have children, I believe it, I would relate it to the nature of, of the covenantal blessing in, the, in this book. The covenantal blessing in Brejit is that you wait 400 years for the covenant to be fulfilled. And on, the, on that journey, there's game with Abdut and Inui. That part of being covenantal is the willingness to suffer for the moment to, or to be in a place you really don't want to be 
for the while with the, with, the, with, the, with the belief that somehow if you stay the course and behave correctly, things at the end will turn out right, even, though, even maybe not for you, but you're part of a covenantal process. That is the covenantal blessing of Gerut Abdut and Inui. It's not a blessing many people, you know, necessarily for themselves would care to enter into. If we think about it, live your whole life of suffering so that my fourth generation returns to the land is the price that most people are not willing to pay. Jacob is willing to pay it, actually. That's why he's the great hero. That's why he's Israel. At the end of the day, after he returns from, from Lovan's house, he sets on, he's, he's on that course. He himself says, my years were few and bad. He says it straight up. But he's part of that covenantal process. Asa is the most successful man who ever lived, but he's not the hero of the book. He's the wealthiest guy who ever lived. He owns a country. He's got a gigantic army. He's got everything. He, he has everything. But he's not the hero of the books. I would argue that the matriarchs not having children initially is not, is not disconnected from the, the nature of the covenant. The covenant is you have to pay a price, a big price now, if you want to enter into this covenant with God. Why God set the covenant up, covenant up in that way, I can't tell you. That is what the, you know, you could, we can explain in different ways, but just for our purposes now, that is the nature of the, of the, of the, of the, of the Brit, as described in the 15th chapter, so I think it's connected to that. I'll take one more comment and I got to stop then. Anybody else for the last word? Is it, uh, is it possible that uh, it's not so much that Leah has become comfortable with the relationship with Yaakov, but rather she's become comfortable that it comes from God, that she has finally recognized that whatever is happening, there is meaning beyond just the relationship with Jacob. Um, it's a good point. I think that's, I, I would say that contradicts. Um, uh, of course, in the, in, the first, in the first name, she also mentions, uh, first two names, she also mentions God, right? Shema Hashem Kisra Nochi Rashem Bionyi. So she is, um, yeah, I mean, I think that, I, I, you know, as we have in our prayers, I mean, to, to, we give thanksgiving at the end of our meetup, basically. And I think she herself understands that the process has, she sees God, I, I would say this way, yes, I like what you say, she's seeing God as, as part of this process. She understands that God has doing this in order to help her find her place. And when she says, it's a way of affirming that at this point, thank you, God, for what you've done. I now think that, you know, I'm grateful for what you've done for me. And, it's, and, right, and after that, she doesn't have children. I mean, she will have children later. We'll get to that later on with the complications of Rachel and the, and the two Amahot, uh, um, uh, whatever. We'll, we'll get to that. And the mandrakes and all the other stuff. And I would say the, the, uh, the trophim as well. It's all related. It's all about having children. Uh, not only is it about having children, but very interestingly, it's not just about human beings having children. It's also about the animals and the manipulation of the animals, akudim, akudim, budim, tulim, etc. We'll see all about that too. That's not unconnected. It's not un It's very much connected. But uh, we'll stay tuned. Okay, we'll stop at this point. Again, my email dsoberatrisha.org. If anybody has comments or questions, just send me an email. I'll try to respond to them. Uh, okay, thank you. Um, All right, thank you, everyone. Yes, I want to mention that uh, next Sunday evening, I believe it is, or Sunday afternoon. Is it afternoon? What time is it, Kay? When the the Bohm lecture. Evening, seven o'clock. Uh, evening. 
Seven o'clock. Yes, there's a very, very interesting lecture next Sunday night at seven. We continue our classes and thank you. Kayla, you want to say something additional? Nope. I just wanted to say if you are, you should, I, you have uh, jumped, you have uh, sniped it. But yes, if, please do consider joining us for the Bone Lecture. You can find out information about such as topic, who's teaching, andreshow.org slash classes. Thank you everyone for joining today. Um, and if you, there were a lot of questions in the chat. I, if we couldn't get them, I'm sorry. I, and I apologize. Please feel free to reach out by email and have a good Sunday.